In the year 440, an exiled man named Nestorius died alone. Nestorius was once a prominent and beloved man. He was the bishop of Constantinople, the second most important city in the entire Christian empire. Now, how did a, a prolific Christian pastor die? He was banished from all Christian cities for teaching a heresy, a heresy known as Nestorianism. Nestorius' troubles began when a pastor under his care started criticizing a term or a title that had become popular in the Christian world and was used by many Christian theologians, and it was a title specific to Mary. And that term is the Greek word theotokos, or theotokos. A literal translation of the theotokos would be God-bearer, but typically we don't use such a literal translation. The more common translation is the phrase, mother of God. Now, Nestorius had a, an obligation to correct this pastor underneath him who was criticizing this term, mother of God, but instead, Nestorius agreed with him. Nestorius took issue with the term Theotokos, mother of God, and on one Christmas morning, he began a sermon series, a long sermon series, condemning the use of Theotokos for Mary. This caused a huge split in the church. There was a passionate debate taking place between the Nestorians and everyone else. And this eventually led to a council being called in 431 in Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus. The Council of Ephesus condemned Nestorius and affirmed that Mary is Theotokos, the mother of God. And this put many of the leading Nestorians in prison and Nestorius himself after this ruling chose banishment instead. Now, ironically, the Nestorian controversy caused an equally incorrect heresy in the opposite direction, and that's the one that we looked at last week, Eutychianism. Eutychus and his party overreacted to Nestorius' errors and then went too far the other direction and fell into error themselves. And that, along with some political malpractice, I, I don't have time to get into it today, but the Council of Ephesus is marred with political malpractice, which is why some refer to it as the Council of Robbers, or the Robber Council. So these two things is what led to, 20 years later, the need for another council, the Council of Chalcedon. So Chalcedon, Chalcedon sought out to continue approving of the condemnation of Nestorius, the Chalcedonian Creed is absolutely interested in condemning Nestorius, but it also set out to condemn this new heresy that we looked at last week, Eutychianism. And in the Creed, in the Council of Chalcedon, one of the many ways that it sought to refute Nestorius by, was by reaffirming the use of the word mother of God, or in Greek, Theotokos. So why then did Nestorius protest the use of the Theotokos? He felt the term was inaccurate because Mary did not create Jesus' Godhead. Mary only created his human nature, not his divine nature. So Nestorius rejected Theotokos, mother of God, arguing instead for the term Christotokos, that Mary is the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. Nestorius maintained that Mary is the mother of Christ, not the mother of God. And I would say to some degree, perhaps we can kind of sympathize with him, especially if you were here last week. 
And we can sympathize with Nestorius because as we learned, we do need to keep the natures in Christ distinct. We can't blend the natures together. The problem for Nestorius, however, and his first followers, was that when they started to defend their view, they ended up going down a dangerous road. They began to speak of Christ as if he was two people in one body. And many scholars today think that perhaps Nestorius is misrepresented when we speak of what he actually taught. But regardless of, of, of what he actually taught, his views really did lead, the logical conclusion of his arguments did lead to us treating Jesus like Jesus was two persons. Like there are two different Jesuses, the Son of God in heaven came together with Jesus the man, and they came together, these two people, two persons. And so the error of Nestorianism is simply that. It's a rejection that Christ is, that his two natures are united in one person. The error of Nestorianism is that Christ is essentially not just a person with two natures, but there's a person connected to each nature. He is two persons and two natures. And so let's see how the creed sought out to refute this. The creed reads this way. After learning about the two natures of Christ, which we did last week, the creed goes on to say that these two natures are concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the problem that we saw last week with Eutychius was that he maintained that Christ was a single person. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Christ. But he couldn't comprehend how one person could have two natures. He thought that was a logical impossibility. So he thought if there's one Christ, there's one nature. But the Bible says he's both God and man. So we have to blend God and man together into a divine quasi-man mixture. And the council rejected that. And Nestorius is actually making a similar error here. Nestorius is actually, or at least the logic of Nestorianism, is also, dis, is also agreeing with Eutychianism that with, with, with one person there, there can only be one nature. But Nestorius rightly saw that the natures of Christ are full. It's not a blend, it's not a mixture, it's not a corruption. So Nestorius rightly saw Christ has two full and complete perfect natures. He's not quasi-God, he's fully God, he's fully man. But he agreed with the Eutychians that one person can't have more than one natures. So rather than blend the natures, he divided the man. So we have two persons. And this is why the creed over and over and over again, not just in the section that you read today, but all throughout the creed uses this phrase, one and the same son. One and the same son. There is one son, and he's the same. We don't have two different sons come together. One and the same son. So the key to the sermon then is this. Christ has two natures last week, but he is only one person. Christ has two natures, but he is only one person. And this is the key especially for our kids. Some of the rest of the sermon might get a little complicated today. And so if you get confused by that, here's what you need to take home with you today. There is only one Jesus Christ. You have one Lord Jesus. There are not multiple Jesuses. There are not different Jesuses. You have one Jesus who is your Savior and your God. Now, to better understand the singular person of Christ, we need to, again, continue to build from last week. 
Last week, one of the things we emphasized was that the properties of each nature need to be kept specifically to that nature. So what is said of the human nature of Christ cannot be said of the divine nature of Christ. So you can't reason from Jesus got tired and hungry. You can't reason from that to God the Father gets tired and hungry. Because Jesus is God, Jesus gets tired and hungry, the Father is God, so the Father must get tired and hungry. That would be speaking about his human nature and applying its attributes to his divine nature. And we learned that we can't do that. That's a confusion of the natures. We can't confuse them. But what theologians have emphasized because of Nestorianism is a communion of attributes. Not a confusion, but a communion of attributes. Although they do not mix, they are united in one person. And the consequence of this is that the whole person can be described according to anything that is applicable to each nature. So you can't speak of one nature as the other nature. But you can speak of the whole person with either natures. If that doesn't make sense, we're going to continue on in that. But let, let me just briefly give an analogy for that. And again, it's, this is not an analogy of the whole hypostatic union. This is not an analogy for who Jesus is. It's just an analogy for how two parts can be contradictory, but not by the whole. For, imagine for a moment that this tie, my Christmas tie, was completely red. It didn't have any white or green. It was just completely red. So I walked in with a red tie and a gray suit. Would it be appropriate or true to say, Pastor Colin is wearing a red suit? No, that's obvious. That's incorrect. He would not be wearing a red suit. He would be wearing a gray suit. However, what if we changed it to this? Would it be appropriate to say, Pastor Colin is wearing red? Yes. So you can't confuse the parts. You can't speak of the tie as if it's the coat. You can't speak of the coat as if it's the tie. They need to remain distinct. But one person is united in this outfit. So both are true of the whole person. Is Colin wearing gray? Yes. Is Colin wearing red? Yes. Those are both true at the same time and they're not contradictory. What can be said of the parts cannot be said of other parts, but it can be said of the whole. So is it true that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge? Yes. Is it true that Jesus knew all things? Yes. Those statements are not contradictory. We can speak of the whole because the parts are united in the whole. This is why the creed uses that odd philosophical term subsistence. It affirms that Christ is one person and one subsistence. The reason they had to use that philosophical word was what, they're essentially synonymous. Subsistence means person. When we say he's one person, we're actually saying he's one subsistence using more common English language. But what subsistence is getting at is it's recognizing that when you think of one of the natures of Christ, you cannot assume that a nature equals a person. If I were to die today, my, I would be dead, I would be gone, but humanity would exist, right? Because my subsistence is in humanity. I, have a, I am a subsistence of human nature, but human nature exists apart from me. So what we're saying is that when we talk about Jesus having a human nature, that we are not saying Jesus has a human person. 
A nature is not a person. Humanity is an abstract concept. Divinity is an abstract concept. So when we talk about Christ being one person, we talk about him being one subsistence. And what that means is that when the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who already had a divine nature, added a human nature to himself, he did not add a human person to himself. Because nature doesn't equal person. You don't have a subsistence until you have a person united with a nature. So a human nature by itself, whatever philosophically that is, is not a person. A person with a human nature is a human. And likewise with a divine nature. So when we say Christ subsists in one person, what we're trying to say is it's not two people came together and made two people in one body. So we've got the Son, divine, and then the Word, the man. There's one person, but he is, subsists. There's one singular subsistence, and he subsists in humanity. He subsists in divinity. And so th this, all, this is what all this leads to. Last week we saw that we, we need to keep the natures distinct, and there are times when the scriptures do that, and we saw that last week. He was born of David according to the flesh, right? So the scriptures are happy to speak of attributes of one nature or the other. But the goal this week is to open up our Bibles and see that while the Bible will never speak of one nature according to the other nature, the Bible is very comfortable speaking of both natures as being consistent with the whole. And I really do believe if you're still confused by all this jargon, I think the Bible will make it clear. So let's open up our Bibles. Go, if you will, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, looking at verse 28. Acts chapter 20, looking at verse 28. This is what the, the text says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pay care, careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Here's why this verse is amazing. It's telling us that the Christian church has a head. Somebody is the head of the church. And it tells us how that person became the head of the church. The head of the church owns the church because he bought it. He purchased it with his blood. It's his possession because he bought it. So the head of the church bought it with his blood. Now here's the question. According to the text, who is it that spilled his blood for the church? Not philosophy. What does the text say? Who spilled his blood? God, the church of God, which he purchased, obtaining it with his own blood. Let me ask you this question. Does God have blood? The Bible tells me God is spirit. He does not have flesh and bones. You know why the text can speak like this? Because the God part is consistent with one of Christ's natures. The blood part is consistent with one of Christ's natures. And therefore, they are both consistent with the whole person. So it is absolutely biblically appropriate to say God bled. 
That's what the Bible says. God bled. He doesn't say Christ, God is the head of the church because he spilled something which he obtained from his human nature only. It doesn't feel the need to do that. Jesus is God. He has blood and he shed his blood for you. So God shed his blood for you. This text was such a powerful testimony against the Nestorians that the Nestorians actually argued that the word God was a mistranslation and that it shouldn't be in there and that the word Christ should be in there. Saying that Christ, the church of Christ, which he spilled for his own blood. The, the problem is that the, the manuscript evidence just does not support that reading whatsoever. And to prove it to you, I would encourage you, when you go home today, you try to find one single Bible translation. Find a single Bible translation that uses the word Christ instead of God in this text. You won't find it. There is no manuscript evidence for this. But the Nestorians, it was so damaging to their viewpoint, they had to actually alter the Bible. And the Bible that they read reads Christ. By the way, that church continued. There is a Nestorian church that exists in the East today. It's called the, Orion, the Oriental Orthodox Church. And they would still argue that we need to put the word Christ in here. Because the, the, the divinity of Christ didn't shed his blood. So God did not shed his blood. The humanity of Christ shed its blood. And what's the logical implications of that? We've got a divine Christ and a human Christ. The human Christ died, not the divine Christ. But there's only one Christ. The divine Christ died. His human nature didn't die. Or forgive me, his divine nature didn't die, but the divine Christ died. God died. That's what the text says. This also, you don't have to turn there, but this comes up again, the same kind of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. And that text says that none of the rulers of this age understood the gospel for they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Lord of glory, if we were to be specific, is only consistent with Christ's divine nature. Yet, who is it that was crucified? Not the, not, it doesn't say the human nature of the Lord of glory was crucified. It says the Lord of glory was crucified. God was crucified. God bled. That's what the Bible says. And the, again, the scriptures speak of this because there is only one person. So what is true of either, either nature can be spoken of as the whole. Jesus, who is fully God, died. Therefore, God, the Lord of glory, died and was crucified. Let me show you another amazing example of this. One of my favorites. Turn, if you will, to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 28. To give a little bit of context to this verse, Jesus has resurrected. He has appeared to some of his disciples, not all of them. The disciples go back and tell the other disciples, and one of them is Thomas. This is why we in the church refer to Thomas, and we tell it to our kids as doubting Thomas. Thomas didn't believe their testimony. And Thomas said, I refuse to believe that Jesus is risen unless I get the empirical evidence. I, I got to see scientifically that he is risen or I don't believe it. And Jesus eventually condescends and he shows Thomas. He shows him the empirical evidence. And that is found in chapter 20. Look with me at verse 28. After Thomas sees that, yes, Jesus is risen, listen to his conclusion. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Isn't it interesting that it was the human body that Thomas saw 
And what did it prove to him? That that person in front of him is my God. Notice Thomas did not have to say, your human nature has proven that somewhere in there is a divine nature, and that divine nature is my God. The divine nature of Christ is not your God. Christ is your God because he's divine. So what is true of either of the parts is true of the whole. Jesus has a body. Yes, so he is the resurrected Lord. Jesus has a divine nature. Yes, so he is God. So he is my Lord and he's my God. But he's not a Lord and a God come together. So one person, man and divine, Lord and God. The divine nature of Christ is not your God. Christ, who is fully God, is your God. Now, these are just short proof texts. Here's, here's why I really think it'll drive it home. I, I hope you're tracking. I hope you're getting it. But just in case you're not, here's an amazing one. Turn to Hebrews 1. This is a, cha- a passage we've looked at before already. But Hebrews chapter 1. One of my favorite chapters to prove the divinity of Christ. But we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle this morning. We're going to walk through this together. Hebrews chapter 1, begin with me in verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. I want us to stop there. Let's focus in specifically on verse 2. We have something amazing here. We have works of Christ, attributes of Christ, presented in this verse... And some of them are only consistent, they're only, to use last week language, they're only properties of one or the other nature. Right? So in verse 2, he has spoken to us, that's what Christ did in his human nature. He has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So who is the son according to verse 2? He is the one who did not own all things. They did not belong to him, but then he inherited them. Right? That's what it means to be an heir. Christ inherited all things. So this is something that's only true, technically speaking, of his human nature. He was born, he accomplished the will of God, and that's why Philippians 2 says, so he ascended to God, and God gave him, and that moment, he was given the name above all names, because he fulfilled his mission. So Christ did not own all things, and as a side note, that's why he didn't say it to Satan. When he was tempted in the wilderness... Satan said, I own these things, and if you worship me, I will give them to you. And notice what Christ didn't say. He didn't say, whoa, 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 you don't have the authority to do that. Christ did not own these things. After his mission, he inherited all things. He became the name above every name. So this is something that's only, it's a property consistent only with his human nature. But then what does it do right away? Right? Not in the next chapter. Not in the next. Right away, the same person who inherited all things, what, is he also the same person through whom he also created the world? So Christ is both the heir of all things, meaning he didn't own them and he owned them. He inherited them. And he's also the one who has always owned all things because he made them. So notice the text is implicitly distinguishing between the natures here. There's a sense in which Christ has always owned everything. There's another sense in which he had to earn everything. 
But notice the text doesn't go out of its way to say his divine nature always owned everything, but his human nature became the inheritor of all things. What is that doing? That's treating his human nature like it's itself a person. A nature doesn't inherit anything. People inherit things. So what the text does, it says what's true of both parts is true of the whole. Has Christ always and forever owned everything? Yes. Is Christ the inheritor of all things? Yes. Because he's one person. He is him who both created and inherited the world. We don't have two Christs, one the creator, one the inheritor. And we continue... He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, very clearly, divine attributes being spoken of here. These are things that were true of Christ before his incarnation. Yet, this same Son, who is the glory of God and has the exact imprint of his power, and the same Son, who is currently upholding all things, he's the sovereign God of all creation, what did he do? After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the divine God who created and sustains all things, who radiates God's glory, did also what? He died. The text doesn't say his human nature died. The text tells us he died. The son died. The one who radiates God's glory in nature died. What can be said of either part can be said of the whole. Let's just look at verse 4 for fun. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Didn't he already have a greater name than the angels? Wasn't he already greater than the angels? Well, in a certain sense, yes. But according to his incarnation, no. He became lower than them and then inherited a greater name. But yet again, I emphasize, who did that? The human nature of Christ? That's not what the text says. Christ. Just to drive it home, I think it's already on the screen. Let's read together. This is what a Nestorian interpretation, or not an interpretation, if Nestorianism was true, this is how Hebrews chapter 1 would have to read. I created this myself. This is Hebrews chapter 1, the new Nestorian version. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by the human nature of his Son. He appointed it as the heir of all things, yet it was through the Son's divine nature that he created the world. It is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature, and it upholds the universe by the word of its power. Then after his human nature made purification for sins, it sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, as it has become much superior to the angels, as the name it has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice what we're doing in that understanding. We are treating the natures as if they are separate people. A human nature doesn't sit down at the right hand of God. A person does. A human nature doesn't receive a name. A person does. A, a divine nature does not create and sustain the world. A divine person does. If you're going to go down the route of Nestorianism, you're going to have to distinguish between the natures so exclusively that you will eventually divide Christ into two people. And you'll start saying things like, well, the divine nature didn't die, the human nature died. And then you'll start saying things like, well, the divine God didn't die, the human man died. And now you've got two people. And Jesus is not two people. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. He is one person.
So at the risk of being redundant, we need to take a break here to clarify one thing before our conclusion. What these texts have not done is confuse the natures of Christ. Right? Like my, my fear is that you read these and think, so what you're saying last week is false then. Last week you said we can't talk about the natures like they're the same. And then this week we have all these passages and they're doing that. That's not what the passages are doing. Hebrews 1, John 20, Acts, 1 Corinthians are not saying something about the human nature of Christ and also applying it to the divine nature of Christ. That's not emphatically not what the texts are doing. Rather, they are taking things that come from both natures and applying them both to Jesus. Does that make sense? So they are not confusing the natures, but they are uniting the natures in one person. So anything you can say about the human nature of Christ, you can say about Christ. Anything you can say about the divine nature of Christ, you can say about Christ. But you can't say anything of the human nature of his divine nature. I know I'm using nature a lot, but I hope that makes sense. Nestorianism divides Christ, and we can only have one Christ. I want to conclude with a couple important notes. Let's answer the question then. Should we then be comfortable affirming that Mary is the mother of God? Should you then be hesitant of that phrase? Should you worry about that phrase? And I argue as the vast majority of the Christian tradition, not just the Reformed, but the Lutherans, almost the entire heritage of the Reformation, have all emphatically declared, yes, she is Theotokos. She is the mother of God. Why? Because there's only one Christ, and he is God, and she is his mother. She is the mother of God. But here's my answer. I'm going to, take, I'm going to qualify the, answer, the historic answer a little bit. And my answer to you is this. Should you affirm Theotokos? Should you be willing to call Mary the mother of God? My answer to you is this. Sympathetically, yes. Sympathetically, yes. Now, why do I say sympathetically? Well, I say that because many of the concerns surrounding the term mother of God, while I think they're ultimately wrong, I think they're really fair concerns. I think that we can be sympathetic to the argument even if we ultimately think it's wrong. Let me give you my two reasons why I think that it is okay to sympathize with these arguments. And the first reason is because what we did last week and this week, admittedly, I think we can all admit, this is a hard place to find the balance of. What the Chalcedonian Creed has done is it has paved this beautiful middle road. And I would argue it's the biblical road. The Creed has painted this beautiful biblical road, this path, in between an error, a ditch on one side, Nestorianism, talking about Christ as if he's two different people. And a ditch on the other side, Eutychianism, talking about Christ as if he's a demigod, a combination. Those are the errors we don't want to fall into. And, and the creed has painted this beautiful path that we confess today. One person, two natures. Not one person, one nature. Not two people, two natures. One person, two natures. But admittedly, sometimes this trail feels more like a tightrope. It's very difficult to, to walk this line and not fall into a heresy. And you want to know what is the greatest proof of that? The greatest proof of that is the debate that is underneath the Theotokos title is underneath other issues that we continue to debate today. Last week, I brought up the issue of the Lord's Supper. If you remember, the one of the Reformed arguments against the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans of believing that Christ is literally in the Supper was that it committed Eutychianism. 
It took his human body and made it omnipresent. It blended the natures. It said something which is only true of his divine nature about his human nature. Christ's body is not omnipresent. So we can't make his body everywhere present. That was one of the arguments. So the Lord's Supper, and guess what the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics said back to the reformers? What did they call them? What do you think? The, the reformers said, you guys are Eutychians, technically. What do you think they said back to the reformers? You guys are Nestorians. <laughs> You're dividing Christ. This, this very issue underneath Theotokos rages on today underneath the Lord's Supper. It rages on, by the way, even in inter-Protestant dialogue over images of Christ. This includes picture books, movies, uh, nativities, any, any image of Christ. Many Reformed, the, the overwhelming position in the Reformed tradition has been, what's the second commandment? No images of God. No graven images of God. Who is Jesus? He's God. What does that mean? No graven images. So the Reformers historically were against images of Christ. What modern Protestantism has pushed back on is that an image can only be an image of his body. We're not creating an image of his divine nature. It doesn't have a, we're only creating an image of his body. And so it's okay to have an image of Christ because we're not in that sense making an image of the divine essence. We're just making an image of his divine body or of his human body. So underneath this question, is it okay to have a nativity? Is it okay to, to have a picture book for your children that has Jesus in it? Underneath that question is the same thing underneath Theotokos. How do we understand the communion of attributes? Is one an image of his divine nature? Is one image of his whole person, which is God, which means we shouldn't be making an image of God? And here's the thing. I feel very comfortable with the, with the Lord's Supper one, but with this one, I, I don't even actually know where I stand on that. The reason I bring it up is not to give you an answer, but just to show you these issues are difficult. So we can sympathize with the Nestorian fear of, wait, we're over here calling Mary the mother of God, but the Bible says that Jesus is David's son according to the flesh. So Mary is only the mother of Jesus according to the flesh, so we really shouldn't say she's the mother of God because God the Father is God and Mary's not his mother, so... Can't we sympathize with that? Can't we kind of understand where that began? I think we can be sympathetic. I think ultimately it's wrong, but we can be sympathetic. But there's another more modern controversial reason why I think we should continue to be sympathetic to the Theotokos title. And that is because I think the Theotokos title historically has proven as kind of greasing the skids for what we refer to today as Mariolatry. In the modern world, both in Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy, but much more in Roman Catholicism, we in the non-Roman Catholic world accuse them of what's called Mariolatry, which means the idolatry of Mary. In other words, we argue Roman Catholics worship Mary. Now, they are offended by that term, and they push back on that term. They say, no, 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 we absolutely do not worship Mary. But just so you can understand why I'm not just trying to be this mean curmudgeon, I'm not trying to be divisive and cruel to your Roman Catholic neighbors and loved ones, let me just kick you a hypothetical for a moment. I want you to imagine you join a missionary group, and you're going with a team to reach an unreached tribe. We've discovered a tribe in South America that's never had a Christian witness. And you go with this team to bring the gospel to this tribe. And they're a peaceful tribe. They've welcomed you in. And you show up and you hit the ground, get off your plane. And the first thing you go into is a building which is obviously constructed to be like a temple. 
And you walk into this temple and you see all of the native people on the ground bowing and praying before a statue. And this statue is a golden statue of a woman with a crown adorned in royal linens. And they've lit candles and they've lit incense and they're bowing down and they're kissing the feet of this golden female queen. And you ask your translator, what are they saying? What are they doing here? And they say, well, this statue here, they say that this represents the queen of the heavens. And they are asking in their prayers, they are praying to the queen of the heavens. And they are asking this queen to forgive them of their sins and to intercede in their life and protect them from demons. Would you not instinctively call that worship? Would you even second guess it? Would you not immediately, instinctively, without hesitation, say this is religious worship? They are worshiping that goddess. I ask that rhetorically. And the problem is, what I just described to you happens in the Roman Catholic world regularly, all the time. It's not hyperbolic. It's not a fringe thing. It is in, some, in many places in the world, this is a common, regular practice. Roman Catholic churches all over the world have statues, golden statues of Mary in their churches and in their homes. And she usually has a crown. And the reason she has a crown is because the Catholic church teaches that she is the queen of heaven. So they call her the queen of heaven and they bow down to statues of Mary and they kiss the feet of the statue of Mary and they will light candles and incense. They have doctrines about her. They say that she was perfect, that she committed no sin, and she didn't even have original sin. She was a perfect human being. She was the queen of heaven. They have a doctrine that she immaculately ascended to heaven. Her body was never buried. It was taken up into heaven so that she could be announced as the queen. And then they pray to her. And if you read prayers which are sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Church, these prayers will include things like, we need you to protect us from the demons. We entrust our souls to you so you can secure for us the forgiveness of our sins. These are direct quotes from hundreds of Marian prayers. They pray to her as the queen of heaven and they ask her to protect them from Christ, to intercede between Christ and them, and to keep them safe on earth. They can call it whatever they want. That's worship. That's worship. Here's an important question we need to ask. Where did that come from? You cannot find that in the first century. You can't find that in the second century. You can't find that in the third century. You can't find that in the fourth century. Where did this come from? Historically, it's very easy to trace the development of Mariology. There were little bits of pieces in Gnostic writings that eventually made its way into the Christian church, and it's only evolved and grown. At the time of the Council of Chalcedon, people were not behaving like this. But Mariolatry had grown specifically in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, in Ephesus, we already had a church named after her, and people were in Ephesus already praying to her. And one of the concerns about the Theotokos title is by giving Mary this special title, we're actually just increasing. We're giving people permission to continue to exalt her. And I think historically we've seen that that's actually kind of true. That's actually kind of true. I actually oftentimes will ask myself, why did Mary need to be put in these creeds at all? The Apostles' Creed, all it says is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That's it. 
The Nicene Creed, all it says is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That's it. The Athanasian Creed doesn't even mention Mary, Mary's name at all. She's not in it at all. So even I kind of question, why did we have to put this in here? So I think the term is unnecessary. And I do think it's even dangerous. But at the end of the day, it is absolutely true. It's still true. Because what can be said about Christ's nature can be said about the whole person. What can be said about Christ's nature can be said about the whole person. As a matter of fact, it was the great reformed uh, theologian Francis Turretin. Francis Turretin who said that we should not allow the error of the papists to strip us of our lawful and rightful use of this term. And that's true. Is it true that Rome has taken this term and they've just blown Mary out of proportion? Yes. But does that mean that we can't use the term? I would submit to you, no. We should continue to use it. And why should we continue to use it? Because I say this to you. If God can bleed, which the text says, then surely God can be born. And if God can be born, then God can have a mother. And as it turns out, God was born. And he did have a mother. And her name was Mary, the mother of God. And my hope is that when we say that phrase, when we hear that title, it won't turn your eyes towards Mary. It will instead turn your eyes and your hearts and your affections towards her fully God son. And I'll end with this. What the scriptures present about Mary is that she was an incredibly humble, godly woman. And so I cannot help but think there is nothing that would please Mary more than getting our eyes off of her and putting them on her son.